0: There is a rich man who dressed himself in purple and fine linen and feasted sum, sum, sumptuously every day. And at his gate, a poor man named Lazarus was laid full of sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. But the dogs came and lifted. With his the poor man died and was carried by the angel angels by A- abraham's side the seat of honor the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, began in torment he lifted up his eyes and saw abraham far off and Lazarus at abraham's
1: and the rich man called out father abraham have mercy on me <laughs> and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in cool water, in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And Abraham said, "My dear son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. Now he is comforted here, and you are in great pain. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. That those who would pass." From here to you cannot and none may cross from there to us and the rich man said then I beg you father send him to my father's house for I have five brothers to warn them lest they also come to this place of torment but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and the rich man said no father Abraham but if someone comes from them to them from the dead they will repent abraham said to the rich man if moses and the prophets they do not hear nor if one rises from the dead will they be convinced thank you kate and chris you guys can have a seat
2: what a lovely story right yes after after that sweet time of worship of crying out to god for help of remembering all that God does for us, all of a sudden we find ourselves in uh, one of Jesus' parables um, that uh, if we're honest um, is one we'd rather avoid, right? <laughs> um, if, if we're really honest, it's one we probably would rather have not have gone into. Like, why didn't we go into like the prodigal son? Or maybe even the dishonest manager and all those things. All the stories that actually take place between the last place we ended a couple Sundays ago. Um, the stories that precede this story. The stories that actually are connected to this story in some way—the stories of God running after the 99, or leaving the 99 to run after the one, or going to find the 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 coin and celebrating off the the missing coin and throwing a great party and spending all that was uh, all that was already there, right? Like, why don't why don't we tell one of those stories? Well, the truth is, like Jesus wants us to to be ones who live in the abundance of those stories, in the stories of God for us and with us, God being our help of discovering, just as a psalmist did, as, as Allie read for us, that in the midst of our worst places, in the time when we feel the distress and the unease of life, the captivity of life, the oppression of life, the blindness and lack of clarity of life, that when we cry out, we know we're heard. That when we're, when we're felt captive, we know we're freed. We get to experience life in its fullness and its abundance. That we get to flourish. Jesus desires that for us, but the reality is, even as we saw a couple weeks ago, that the only way that we flourish is if we get out of the cycle that keeps us from flourishing. That we live outside of this cycle of looking at others and how we relate to others, and thus how we relate to God and how God relates to others in a way that keeps us from actually flourishing. In fact, that's kind of the question that I think our story is actually asking us. What do we need to flourish? What do we need to live free in the fullness of our true selves in God? as the poor who Jesus came and said he, had said he had proclaimed good news to. Well, when you think about what do you need to flourish, I mean, it's probably, I mean, I would think that the basics would come to mind, right? At minimum, we need food, water, shelter, covering, those things that we, if we lack them, we hardly survive, and thus we'll never mature into the fullness of ourselves, Right? I mean, if you think about it, like, we need those things, right? We need a home, we need a car, we need a job, we need food, we need um, uh, shelter, we need resources, we need the things that, uh, that kind of fill life and make life feel full. And listen, those things are good for us. God knows that we need those things, right? I mean, that's what we said a couple weeks ago. I mean, Remember what Jesus said? He said, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn. And yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds? How much more value are you than the birds who, like again, just look outside and see how God cares for his creation and his creatures. Remember, God cares more for you who gives them what they don't even work for. Or consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil, they don't work or labor, nor do they weave. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as these. But if God so closed the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the baker's oven, how much more will he clothe you? If this thing that seems so temporary and just a resource, he clothes with such beauty and splendor, how much more does he provide for you? How much more does he, does he seek to give you the basics, clothing and food? So Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on it, the basics of life, right? The basics, necessities for living. For life is more than food. In the body more than clothing. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, the more than. And your father knows you need them, but instead seek his kingdom, life with him, life in him. And all these things will be added to you. All the basics will be given to you. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you life with him. He loves to do it. He longs to do it. So maybe it's the more than that leads to flourishing then. If it's not just the basics, Maybe it's the more than basics. That's what Jesus says, right? Like it's, like life is more than the basics. And more being the key word. More stuff, more claim, more influence, more time off, more fill in the blank, however. Whatever more we think we need, more than the basics, whatever gets us more, that's the drive that moves our modern world, doesn't it? Isn't that what drives us to get up and to go to work every day? To get more than the basics, our entire economy is based off this desire for more, right? I mean, we're uh, coming up, I think, uh, in the next couple of days, it's Amazon Prime Day. <laughs> A day that personifies the need for more. Not because we need more, but because that's the way our world works. Like, we have to have more. We're, we're conditioned to long for more, to desire more. Because we're conditioned for more than life and just survival, right? And so we, if, if, the, if the basics just gets the creatures that live outside, that are temporary, then there must be more than the basics for us who are eternal, right? But here's the thing. We really do need more. We really do need more than the basics. Again, what did Jesus say when he began his ministry in Luke chapter 4? That he came to proclaim good news to the poor, to those who are in need, those in true need, who truly need something more, to bring them freedom, the pinnacle of more. Right, Because isn't that what we're really after and when we're seeking more? is to live free. To have the fullest, to live life freely in whatever vision of life we might have. But Jesus came to, to free us, to, to raise us to the pinnacle of more. To those captive, unable to move about at liberty. To those blind, unable to move with certainty. To those oppressed, unable to move easily without discomfort, emotional or physical. To declare, Jesus says, the favor of the Lord that the lost have been found, the prodigal has returned, the dead are alive, and the kingdom has come. That's what Jesus came to proclaim. And not just speak, but to bring into existence. Jesus wants more for us and says that our Father desires to give us more than the basics, which he adds to. He desires to give us more than manna from heaven, the food of sustenance for each day. But maybe the more than is more, is in our culture gets lost and translated more as is more of the basics. It's not more than the basics, it's just more of the basics. More of the material and social things which we most often seek, but maybe more than is something more fundamental than the basics. Maybe the more than is not more of, but something other. Maybe something we need more than the basics, which again, God delights to provide for us. One author and editor um, named Andy Crouch argues this. He says, recognition is the first human quest. After an ordinary delivery, after the very first few startled cries, newborn infants typically spend an hour or so in the stage doctors call quiet alert. Though they can only focus their vision roughly eight to 12 inches away, their eyes are wide open. They are searching for an instinct far deeper than intention they are looking for a face. They're searching with more than just an intentionality, they're searching with an instinct, a drive that's more than, like, the, like the, the basics for food and for clothing. And they're looking for something, they're looking for a face and when they find one, especially a face that gazes back at them, they fix their eyes on it, having found what they were most urgently looking for. That even scientifically, if we just observe, like this is the way we start life. Looking not for food, and shelter the basics. Those things are needed, absolutely. A child needs those things to survive, right? But they first look for recognition from the one who can provide those things. They first look for that connection, that recognition. Recognition, argues Crouch, is the primary task of infancy. Feeding, crying, even sleeping are just the support systems for this most essential work of figuring out who we are, that we're connected to something, that we're known, of where we are, who we're with, by making contact with other people. Seeing them see us gradually beginning to build our sense of self through their eyes. This is what we all do as humans. Infants hope, without yet knowing what hope is, that they are being born into a world where someone is looking for them. They hope that they're being born into a world where someone is looking for them. They're not on their own. They're not left to fend for the basics but they're known, they're seen, they're recognized. They're a part of something, they'll grow into something. A world where they will be recognized, known, loved, a world where they will will have a glorious part to play. Isn't that all of our hope? (laughs) Do we ever outgrow that hope? When children are deprived of this kind of recognition and mutual attention for months or years, they may possibly survive, but Crouch argues they never thrive. They can survive without this sort of attention. There's actually, unfortunately, even experiments um, and observations in our twisted human history that, that justifies, uh, support this, um, this thought that if you, if you deprive your children of attention and affection in these sorts of ways, what their life looks like, and how twisted they become as, in, as humans. They can survive it to an extent, but they can't thrive. They won't flourish. They need their recognition to flourish. It's more than the basics. It might be more fundamental than the basics, right? Recognition, then, is what we're after. It's what we're all after. Recognition, just simply put, so that we're all on the same page, is to be wholly seen, completely seen, known inside and out, acknowledged as a contributor, a part of something, and a part in something more than you. Every every parent, when they hold their child, looks at them as more than just an object, a thing, right? They're a part of me. They're a part of you as a parent. And not only are they a part of you and a part of your family, they're also, you have in them instinctually, you begin to dream for them of what they could be and desire to see them live fully and completely in the world, all that they could be. That's a pretty amazing thing, right? And listen, as a parent, you'll know your children inside and out because all the stuff inside comes out. You get to clean it up all the time, right? Right? Like, there's this beautiful thing of being recognized, of being known completely, loved completely, brought in completely, dreamed for, hoped for, imagined for completely. This is the first primary foundational human quest. More than food, more than for shelter, more than for success, more than for acclaim, more than for wealth. What drives us to the basics and more of them is really a desire to be seen. A desire to be seen truly and compassionately for who we are. And a design, by design, to see others truly and compassionately for who they are. Because listen, my kids will one day be parents. I was one time a kid, and now I'm a parent. At some point, I was driven to to long to see someone as truly and completely as I've been seen. And listen, today's story is about living in the more than. I know you we, we might not seem like that, right, after first reading. But today's story is about living in the more than. About the difference between living on the manna, what God provides in the basics, and more than, the foundation of what we need. And the difference between that and living for the mammon, for more of the basics, what the scriptures calls mammon. Contrary to what you might think, this story is not a story about the afterlife. At least it's not pressing the details of what life after death looks like. How many have kind of heard this story this way, right? We can read this story and we can know what what happens when we die. That's not what Jesus is doing here. That's not what he's talking about. He's not trying to give us detailed eschatology, a detail of what heaven is like, what hell is like, what Hades is like. That's not what he's doing. Rather, this story is Jesus' rendition of a rather common pearly gate story told throughout antiquity. This kind of story is told over and over again in almost every culture throughout human history. Where there is somebody, like maybe in, in President Day, if you Googled it right now, like Googled like Pearly Gate story, the first thing that pops up, I, like at least for me the other day when I did it, was like some sort of story where, um, uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not super political, so I don't know who everybody is, but some really ultra-conservative, like... Um, um, Senator was standing before Saint Peter um, at the at the gates of heaven and like having this dialogue. And whoever wrote this story, this their rendition of this Pearly Gate story was like trying to talk about all the things that this person did in their life and how that contradicts the way of like heaven and who gets in and who gets out and all that kind of stuff. Like that's the this kind of story is. It's a story that has nothing to do with like the details of afterlife. This isn't how it really works. It's told with kind of a political, social, economic, kind of proverbial way of trying to draw out some sort of almost like morality of how life really is supposed to function in the here and now. Not in the after, but in the here and now. A story, again, that's offered commentary on the social, political, or economic life of the time. And listen, this is good for us, (laughs) that this is this kind of story. Because if we read this story, not proverbially, not parabolically, as Jesus says it is, like he tells a story, if we read it more literally, then the story reveals to us that if you have more of the basics in life while you're living, then you'll have less of them in the afterlife and vice versa. And is that at all how life actually functions? Is that how all our scriptures tell? Is that the story that our scriptures speak of? No, it's not. So just for ease of mind, we can kind of breathe out that this is a proverbial story. It's not a literal story. So, maybe we need to tell the story a little differently. Not differently in the sense of changing what happens in the story, but tell the story in the way like a, a Palestinian or a Hebrew would have heard the story. See, the, the, the only drawback of our, of our Hebrew scriptures and the, the fact they're written in Greek, they're written in first century is that the way writing was done back there was elaboration was left to the hearer. They just kind of give us the basic details and that we're supposed to kind of fill in a lot of the, the, the details of the story. And that's part of their beauty, right? That's part of what makes them amazing and what makes them living over generation after generation, century after century, is these kind of stories allow us the opportunity to enter into them. And so what I want us to do today is I want to retell the story with a little more elaboration to elaborate, again, what is not new information, but what the first hearers would have assumed based on some cultural things, and just as one, so I think if we were to simply meditate on the Scriptures in prayer for any sort of season, we'd come to the same sort of visual conclusions, right? So I'm going to ask you to, to maybe speed up what is the normal course of the, the action that our Scriptures tell us to do, which is meditate. So for a few minutes, we're going to meditate on these scriptures, but we're going to do so with kind of an elaborative restructuring of the story, retelling of the story that helps us get into the story at a little quicker pace. And to hear, again, that this is a story about the more than rather than the more of. So do this with me really quickly. Just take a deep breath. For a moment we all kind of come into this story with some kind of preconceived ideas of what this means, right? We all heard Kate and Chris read for us this story and probably all had some initial emotions to it, some thoughts on it. And so just for a minute, I'm not asking you to dismiss those completely. Just kind of set them to the side. Just let your mind be present here and ask the Spirit to do what the Spirit does, to open our eyes and heart to the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus says. So we might know him. This is what... We're do every day as we open our scriptures, <laughs> but it's what we're gonna do right now together, okay? So let me pray with, for us and then we're just gonna retell the story. And I encourage you to enter in with me. Father, we thank you that you say life is more than the basics, than just having more of the basics. And Lord, you've even shown us what, what is that thing more fun to, fundamental than the basics. Not that we don't need them, but that you offer more than them. So help us today find that. Where what might be said in the moment is not from you, may you close our ears. And where what is true and true of you, may your spirit bring forth and bring to life in us. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you want, you can open your scriptures to Luke. 16, you can follow along. Again, I'm gonna add in, but you can kind of follow the structure of the story. It starts in verse 19 and goes through 31. But here's the story told with a little, more, um, a little more flavor. There was a rich man who, while having a closet full of options, chose every single day to dress himself in the royal colors. That's purple. Every single day he chose it, letting everyone know what he thought of himself that he was, as any royal in the first century, the center, the most important person in his world. He let his outside reflect his inside. In fact, this man thought of himself so highly that, he even, that even his underwear, his fine linen, was the best money he could buy. His self-absorbed conviction, his self-assessment, if you will, was no surface covering. It went all the way down. Each and every day, this man would throw a feast. Not, not a dinner, not eating the best foods. He would throw a feast. And he would do so celebrating all that he, there was at his fingers to consume. Each day, setting out to get the most of his life. The most out of his life. To take advantage of all that was his life. Every day of every week. No day was skipped. Which meant That his employees, his animals, his land, his resources never had a day of rest. That every day he was being served by everything around him. And every day he demanded everything around him serve him. No Sabbath for this man. No day without or with less. Of doing nothing to remember that he has received everything. Only the best and all the time. More of life and always life to the fullest at least for him and those in his circle, but not necessarily for anyone else in his orbit. Meanwhile, just on the edge of his orbit, just outside his garden's gate, there was a poor man named Lazarus, whose name means the one whom God helps. Though at first glance, the poor man's name would have been more accurately the one who God doesn't help, right? That's if you only glanced. You see, each and every day, As they went to their daily labors, Lazarus' friends and family would drop Lazarus off at the spot outside the rich man's house. They laid him there. And each and every night, exhausted by the day's labors, they would carry Lazarus home. Their hope was, as the custom of the time and the way of their communal faith showed them, that Lazarus would be seen. That's what they hoped, that he would be seen that his humanity would be recognized and his burdens shared by one in position to do so. That's all they hoped for. Lazarus, for his part, demanded nothing, neither healing nor riches. He didn't go to the rich man's house to be healed or to take everything from him. He desired not the sumptuous bounty of the meal, but merely what was left when the rich man and his guests had their full, the scraps from the table. He didn't want to take anything from them. He desired what they would give to the guard dogs anyway. Unfortunately, on most days, the dogs were fed better than Lazarus. Though the dogs did befriend this gentle and assuming man, licking the sores that covered his body, showing him affection, sharing their saliva, which we've come to know facilitates some relief in his sores. The men in the house never saw Lazarus, but the dogs did. One day, Lazarus died. He and his community were too poor to provide a funeral, unable to provide the basics that their communal faith required for his soul's eternal journey. Nevertheless, God sent angels to carry Lazarus to a lavish banquet, the feast of all feasts, what he was always on the outside of, now he was in the middle of. As his friends did on earth, God did for him now. Except for this time, Lazarus, a man by all human examination, always on the outside of the party, always overlooked, lay just on the other side of the divider from abundance, one who we would all pity, found himself at the seat of honor, distinguished for all to see, and next to the father of his faith and people, none other than Abraham himself. Not only was this the feast, this was the feast, and he found himself in the seat at the feast. As is the nature of things, death did not discriminate, and the rich man's life also ended. Unlike Lazarus, he had the means for a grand funeral. All the rites of the dead were observed to ensure his eternal future would be as lavish as his life in the present. However, unlike Lazarus, the rich man found himself in a very different place. The party host and the center participant was now on the outside, on the far side of the divider and experiencing something similar to the pains and torment physically and emotionally and mentally that Lazarus endured during his life the man who lived off of more of the basics, the more of from everyone else, now in need of more than what he could have, what he could provide. Looking up from this place, the rich man saw the banquet going on without him, just as Lazarus did most days. And he saw who was throwing it, none other than his forefather Abraham, for this rich man was not just any rich man, he was a man of the Jews, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he knew his family heritage. And Not only did he see Abraham, but he also recognized Abraham's honored guest, the man who daily laid outside of his gates. Now, it would be safe to assume, being perhaps for the first time in such a position of need, a need of more than this rich man would have, that he would have a different perspective than the one he enjoyed on earth, right? Wouldn't we assume that? Don't we assume that as the story goes? That having this such... explicit and direct con- confliction of what he expected and what he received, seeing the, the complete and utter reversal, literally the reversal of their two places, we would assume that the rich man would have a different perspective than the one he enjoyed on earth. I mean, would not we, any of us, in a position of distress, in a place where we don't, didn't expect to be in need of compassion and aid, wouldn't we re-examine our attitudes and assumptions? Listen, as the story is told, that's what everybody would assume, right? That's how the story's told. That's why the story's told. That's why the pearly gate stories are told, to re-examine and reassume our expectations and assumptions. And the rich man's first words from Hades make us think he did. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Like Lazarus, he finds himself at the gate of the one who can help. Like Lazarus, he is poor, crouched in a beggarly position and imploring the words of beggars of his day, have mercy on me. But unfortunately for this man, He kept talking, and his relationship with Lazarus revealed what truly kept him apart. The rich man cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He begged. He put himself in a place of begging. He recognized he needed. But then he says, and send Lazarus. So he did see the man outside of his gate all those years. And he didn't just see him, he knew his name. Even in our self-absorption, even in our self-consumption, our drive for more of life, we're not entirely blind to those around us. Neither was a rich man. He wasn't entirely blind to Lazarus. He saw him. He recognized him next to Abraham and he recognized him by name. And so he says, send him. In fact, he demands, he says, send him, Abraham, for your honored guest." Send him down to the end of the table to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue to serve me for I am in anguish. Like Lazarus, this man was suffering and needed another to help bring relief from his suffering, not to cure him, but to share his burden. Like Lazarus, this man too longed for the the little, a drip of water like the table scraps. But unlike Lazarus, this man assumed he was entitled to the service of another, even the other who he willfully ignored. What kind of heart is entitled to service? Everyone finds themselves in a place of need of another, but what kind of heart demands from those whom they would not themselves relate to, much less help? Perhaps one that is self-consumed and striving after more of, self-absorbed, distracted by the more of, encapsulated in a bubble of things, capped into a self-made universe of mammon, more of the basics. The same kind of imprisonment that our personalized world of things today creates. The same kind of world that allows us to get things done, often by means of other persons, without the entanglement of friendship. I mean, think about it. Again, what's coming up in a couple of days? I'm not trying to knock like Amazon. I'm just saying this is the way our world works, right? This is the we live in the world of the rich man, right? In a few few days, I can order whatever I want and have it here. And never see the people who made it, never know the people who delivered it, and only get frustrated when they don't meet my needs, and get it here on the time when they said it was going to get here. I don't have to befriend them. I don't have to talk to them. Don't have to have compassion on them. None of that happens to happen. Maybe I'm more like the rich man than I am like Lazarus. Maybe. In the world like ours where we don't need to love or even be in relationship to get what we want, maybe in that kind of world, we don't need to recognize others, only be served by them. It's just a thought. Anyway, rather than honoring Abraham and his family lineage by paying deference to his honored guests, by apologizing or showing some sort of mourning or remorse, which we would expect the rich man to do, the rich man assumes he is equal in stature to the forefather who left him to follow in the way of the Lord he then demands that the person this forefather honors serves him. The rich man sees himself in good standing with Abraham. Just like Abraham who left everything to follow the Lord, left his entire land and family and all those kind of things into journey with the Lord and to have the Lord provide for him all the things that he needed. He assumes, the rich man assumes that's who he is. And so he demands Lazarus to serve him. Because someone, especially in such a predicament, be so self-consumed so self-absorbed, so oblivious to his heart and his neighbor, that he would continue to perpetuate the ills of his life on earth, expecting others to make him the center, not considering others in any way. Apparently so. Who the man was on earth, he's here too. But what about the ever-forgotten Lazarus? How will he respond to learning, perhaps what he assumed all along, right? That he was seen, that his name was known, but he was never recognized. Never dignified or even afforded the lowest level of compassion by the one now demanding his service in a place of need. How would Lazarus respond? Well, I'll tell you what most of us expect. What I would expect, what I've maybe done on the road ways in Dallas a few times, I would expect an explosion of rage and anger. Some expletive-filled rendition of Psalm 28. Oh, don't give the wicked, give the wicked what they deserve. Don't give them anything. Destroy the wicked right? Reverse everything. Or as one one, uh, famous Middle Eastern scholar said, maybe, maybe this is what we'd expect Lazarus to say. You half dead dog. I see you recognize my face and can call my name. And yet you saw me outside your gate, but you didn't really see me. You did nothing to alleviate my pain. Your dogs were kind to me, but you, you no good scum of the earth. Where were you when I needed you? How you, now you want me to serve you? I can't believe it. Abraham, come on. Leave this monstrous ego to fry in hell until the flesh falls off his bones. Nobody's ever said that right. You've never never had that reaction. He fed his dogs. He would not feed me. What's he now what he's now suffering is only half of what he deserves. Again, none of us have ever felt that way about anything, right? About anybody that we've run into, about any situations in our lives. We would, we would expect Lazarus to respond that way because we've responded that way. And to somebody he said. Maybe not, maybe not all the time. Maybe there's been times where you've responded a lot graciously. But if I'm honest, if my heart's exposed, my attitude's exposed there's been just as many times where I've been so self-consumed with their how they treated me that I wanted how I was treated to be how they're treated, right? Because it's all about me. But isn't that the same place that the rich man's in? Luckily for us, Lazarus says nothing. And we'll come back to why he doesn't in a moment. But he allows Abraham to speak, the forefather of his faith, the one who's showing him a way into the, to the feast, who's honoring him in the feast of the Lord. Abraham who himself had experienced the compassion of God and his heart blindness and doubt. Speaks compassionately now to the obtuse rich man. Speaks compassionately to him. He says, my dear son, remember. He doesn't deny his heritage and lineage of the rich man. He doesn't call him a scum. He doesn't squash him and try to push him and try to say, look at you, you filthy person. Like, how could you have done this? You wasted your life. He says, my dear son, Remember. Ever so gently, ever so directly, Abraham invites the rich man to purposefully, intentionally call to mind, to examine, to remember. That's what remember means in the scriptures. Not just to recall a thing and a fact, but to examine, to examine his life and his circumstances with regard to what he had received, the rich man, and what he had failed to share, to offer to the one he overlooked but now demands service from. Remember, says Abraham. Examine, says Abraham. You received, not earned or deserved or manifested good things, which you wholeheartedly consumed. And now you're in anguish outside. Now the more of has led to anguish now. You wanted more of, and you got more of. And now you're in anguish. Likewise, Lazarus received, didn't earn or deserve or manifested bad things, evil things, in anguish outside of your house. In other words, he's saying, Lazarus received evil things from you. You thought you were just ignoring him, but really what you were doing was causing him torment. Withholding your sight from him caused him pain. He didn't deserve that. Just as you didn't deserve the good things, he didn't deserve the evil things. But now, listen to what Abraham says Lazarus is comforted, he's not healed, he's not well fed though both we presume to be true, right? But the scriptures say he's comforted. He's recognized. He's seen. He's held. He's dignified. He's honored. He's loved. He's not healed. He's not fed. That's what we assume, right? Those those things are added to him being recognized. He receives them more than. Lazarus now has the more then. He's comforted, recognized. Lazarus took on what you shared and failed to share, says Abraham to the rich man, and now shares in what he has always been his, the recognition of the Father. He now gets to experience it in full, in whole, in completeness. Talk about a wake-up call, Right? the forefather of your lineage and faith, speaking truth compassionately but directly, not mincing words or skirting the issue, a true revelation of heart and action. And the story could end there, right? The in-life now moral prominent. How you share your gifts with others, use them in consideration of others, how you recognize and see others shapes your forever life and impacts the way others experience life too. There's a truth to that. But then, as is the case for most of us, we walk away with a judgmental attitude, always looking at those who have either with envy or resentment as enemies or entitled to their service, especially when we are in need, right? If that was the case, if that was the point of it, the only point of it, then we'd walk away and we'd be angry at everybody who has when we don't have. Or worse, we reduce life in the kingdom to giving what we have in hopes of getting more someday down the road. We would either get frustrated with people who don't meet our needs or we try to meet everybody's needs and hope that we get more at the end and it weighs out at the end, right? But I'm sure none of us have fallen into that trap. But fortunately for us, now Abraham is the one who keeps talking. And he reels another heart. Really the heart of the story. Abraham says, and besides... Besides that, besides the examination, besides the the need to examine your own heart and relations and what it reveals and what it calls you to, to a place of mourning and repentance, a place of needing to receive what is more than and not just more of. You want more of still. You just want a little bit, right? You just want the drop of water. But what you need is more than life. More than the basics. You need the recognition. The examination would help him see that, would help him come into that place. But here's what Abraham says. More than the examine, besides the examine, between us and you is a great chasm. Besides this difference of the way you see life and the way you live life, there's actually this great distance that's fixed. Heaven and hell are not just a degree of difference, but wholly and utterly different. A difference that those who want to pass from there to you cannot take. And none may cross from there to us. And we just read that and we're like, okay, great. There's a big big gap and nobody can get there. Abraham's just making comment on the situation. But if you think about it, we can, it makes sense that the rich man wants to take the journey, that he wants to cross from there to us, right? If we were in hell and in Hades, we would want to get out, right? Makes total sense. But who in the world would want to pass from heaven to hell? Because that's why Abraham starts, right? He doesn't just say, listen, you over there can't get over here, but he says, the ones from here can't come over there to you. Who wants to come from from heaven to hell? Who? Well, there's only one other person on stage. The ever overlooked, yet nevertheless recipient of the freeing power of recognition, old Lazarus. Lazarus is there. He's standing right next to Abraham. He's hearing what is being said. And we think he doesn't speak. But here's what one commentator notes, and I think it's pretty perceptive. There's an assumption in Abraham's comment that Lazarus leans over while the rich man is begging for his service, demanding his service, and he whispers in Abraham's ear, Father Abraham, that's my old neighbor down there. We have known each other for many years. What a poor man. He's in such a fix. We have plenty of water here if it pleases you, I'll be glad to take a glass down to him. That's what Abraham hears. That's why he says, listen, Lazarus, nobody can go over there. You can't go to him, and neither can he come to you. Lazarus demonstrates the incaps caps of love, as Paul would define it. The love is patient and kind and endures all things. In his life, Lazarus endured all things from the evil of his neighbors, from his neighbors specifically, and his family. Receiving the goodness of his friends and family and the dogs, he received the goodness of others, but also the evil of others. And in doing so, it allowed his heart and character to be matured by the perfecting gifts of recognition he received, even amid the bad as well. Something about Lazarus' life had matured him to a place of loving affection where he could see his neighbor, even if his neighbor couldn't see him. Certainly, Lazarus desired more than the bad, more of the basics. But he, unlike his neighbor, recognized that what he needed most was recognition. Others to see him and to love him, and they did. And that revealed to him that God saw him too. In the service of his friends and family, to lay him at the the gate every day, and the dog's gentle lick of his sores. He knew that he was loved and seen and recognized. And because of that, he could recognize his neighbor too. In the fullness of his recognition, his heart formed by the recognition of his father's love, what was true on earth, now in this place, in this story, confirmed in the fullest array, the abundance of the relationship he received. His love is patient and kind even when his enemy is demanding his service. He is able to do for his neighbor what his neighbor was unwilling to do for him. Wow. How could your heart not be softened? How could a self-absorbed, self-consuming bubble not burst? Compassionately but directly exposed and then compassionately and selflessly sacrificed for Who would not crumble in humility, stop demanding, mourn, and repent? Let go of the desire for more of, and receive the more than. Well, unfortunately, the self-consumed entanglement, which more of the basics, proves to be a pretty hard stone to break. Heart blindness challenging to correct rather than mourning because he sees himself and the love of his neighbor clearly, the rich man disobeys Abraham. He refuses to examine. He doesn't remember. And he changes the subject. He doesn't receive the invitation to remember, to examine. He changes the subject. And he does so, and he appears to move outside of himself, right? It appears that he is concerned now is for his family. But his heart remains the same. He demands that Lazarus, who is also his family, by the way, because he's at the seat of Abraham right? He demands that Lazarus, a child of Abraham, go to his earthly family, family who ignored to Lazarus and their consumption of more of. He demands that Lazarus be sent to his five brothers so that they avoid his, his predicament. It seems altruistic. Lazarus is still, though, only one to be used for the rich man's purpose, no more of a human than any other servant whose purpose-worth identity is to meet his needs. Do then you see it. Because he failed to examine, he still sees Lazarus not as human. He doesn't recognize Lazarus, even though re- re- Lazarus recognizes him. Because he failed to examine. But listen, Abraham won't let Lazarus be a lackey, used but not honored, to personalize into a means to what others desire. So he tells the man the simple truth. Your siblings had the same thing Lazarus had. They had Moses and the prophets. They had the entire story of scripture and life with God and how God's pursued and how God's in abundance given his manna, his basics, and more than the basics, the recognition. They have that. Let them hear. Now we just hear and we say, oh, let somebody read the scriptures and they Listen here in, in both the Greek and in the Hebrew, means to listen and obey in community with others. It's a Shema. It's the first words of the everyday prayer of the Jewish people. The ones, if the rich man had recited every day, would keep him from actually taking advantage of all of his servants and people and resources, keep him in his self-absorbed, self-consumed world. If he had just recited every day, he couldn't look at other people and see them as simply servants for his good if he really heard them, listened and obeyed. But listen, if they listen and obey in community with others, if they pray the prayer of the Shema, if they, if they in, find themselves in a community, if it reminds them and helps them to remember all that God has done, helps them be examined in relation to all that God is, then they'll be fine. But the rich man, I'm sure flustered in a variety of ways, right? not used to not getting his way. He goes from begging Abraham, begging God, the God representative for his good, and begins to rebuke the God representative. He says, Abraham, knowing full well what his family's self-consumption keeps them from the, from the rhythms of remembering, of listening to the word, and being seen by God, and most certainly recognizing their neighbors. He knows that, the, the rich man knows that, and so he rebukes Abraham. He says, no, no. We just hear that as a no, but it's a rebuke. He goes from being in a place of begging God to a place demanding from God. God's representative, right? The one who speaks for good. And he says to the, um, the rich man says, they won't hear, but if someone, who's the someone? Lazarus, he's there, right? I.e. Lazarus returns from the dead. If they can witness that kind of miracle, they will repent. They will turn from their self-consumed blindness, their self-absorbed blindness via the more of and see what they've been given and how to share it with others, for others. He's like, listen, like they're not gonna, they're not gonna listen and obey to your, the words of scripture, the testimony of scripture. They're not, gonna, they're not gonna find themselves as a part of a community that's actually helping them remember, to be examined, their, their, their thoughts and minds and hearts and actions of how they relate to God and others, they're not gonna do that. But if you could just show up in a miraculous way, if you could send Lazarus back, Alive, and that will wake them up. Surely they'll be able to see and repent. Unfortunately, miracles are much less transformative than recognizing the person next to you. Recognizing their personness, sharing their burden as you speak to them, touch them, call them by name into your world. To you, remember God in them, and God in you, and God with you both. I mean, still the rich man wants the quick solution, the service, right? He demands Lazarus be his servant, drop the water. Demands Lazarus be his messenger, go and tell. Demands Lazarus now be the means by which they get to skip all the difficult stuff of actually having to trust God, to remember God, to be examined by God, and to know the more than life, and just get to the end. What if we could see, though, like Lazarus, the one who God helps? I mean, the reality is, I think, if I'm honest, most of the time I look at the world through the lens of the rich man. Most of the time I look at others around me and see what they can do for me. Most of the time, I'm, if I'm honest, like my world is pretty self-consumed and self-absorbed. But what if we could see the world like Lazarus? Ones who God has helped. Remember, that's what his name meant. Not God helps at the end, like at the very end, but like throughout his life, God helped him. Throughout his life, even in the most difficult times. What if we could see how we're seen in all the little and extraordinary and everyday ways, even amid, maybe especially in the difficulties of life. Would we be willing to see others too? even those who make life worse for us, not to mention all those that we use to serve us, to see their need and step across the gap to serve and to share what we have, even if they wouldn't do the same for us. I think that's the point of the story, to get us to ask that question. And praise the Lord, it's a pearly gate story that unlike the story the way the story ends, there still is time. We're not in the place of the rich man. Not not fully and forever yet, anyway. There is still time for us to examine, to remember, to listen and obey, remember and repent and receive the recognition offered to us by Jesus who did what Lazarus was not permitted to do. Who condescended himself. Who went from Heaven to earth and beyond, who saw us in our need and provided us with more than life. We pray with me. Thank you, Father, for stories. Stories that allow us to hear, to see ourselves and our world in a way that if we're open to it, allows us to experience the reality and the truth of life and life with you more abundantly, more fully. Even if it means that we find ourselves in the uncomfortable spot of the rich man, longing to be more like Lazarus, or, if we're honest, really preferring that there's somewhere in between <laughs> where we don't have to be the beggars outside all the time. I thank you that Lazarus' name is that God helps. Not just in the end, but in the midst. And I like the psalmist, Father, Lord, you have heard our cries. You have seen us, known us, recognized us. come. To give us more than life now in Jesus. The good news to the poor. Freedom to the captive. All this we pray in Jesus' name.